Hope you had a wonderful Christmas celebration with family and friends. It never gets old, does it? I loved Christmas, but I have to admit that as a lead pastor, it was always a very stressful time. Overseeing Christmas programs, preparing special services like for Christmas Eve, visiting shut-ins, and still trying to find some time for, for family. And that's why for over 40 years, I always asked an associate or an intern to preach the Sunday after Christmas so I could relax. Well, the chickens have come home to roost. Josh asked me to preach the day after Christmas, and and I'm glad to do it because he assigned to me a passage that is one of my favorite in the Bible, the 40th chapter of Isaiah. For Advent this year, the staff has been choosing a number of prophetic passages relating to the coming of Messiah. And Isaiah 40 contains one of those Advent prophecies. But the real focus of this chapter is not so much on the coming of Messiah as it is on the God who sent him. There's no portion of the Word of God that tells us more about the nature and character of Almighty God than this passage. But before we dig into that main theme, I want us to consider the background and context of this chapter. In the previous chapter, Isaiah 39, the prophet announces that to, he announces to King Hezekiah that the nation of Judah is going to be taken into captivity by Babylon. And though that awful watershed event in the life of the Israelites is still more than a hundred years off, the prophet presents it as an absolute certainty. I read from Isaiah 39, this is page 599 in your pew Bible. Verse 5, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Sadly, as the next verse says, Hezekiah selfishly considers this prophecy to be good news for himself because this is not going to happen during his lifetime, but it is certainly not good news for the nation. Has God decided to abandon his people? No, he will discipline them severely for their, their, for their sins through the Babylonian captivity, but he will not abandon them. And the proof of that is found in the first verses of chapter 40. As the prophet looks even further into the future with these words of comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand 
double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Yes, God is going to allow the nation to be chastised, but Isaiah predicts that peace will follow, a peace based upon the pardon of sins, which in turn awaits Messiah's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all point to the voice here in Isaiah 40 as the voice of John the Baptist and the Lord who is coming as Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one who will bring an end to their troubles. He is the one who will pardon their sin. But how can the people be sure that their captivity will be short-lived, that their sin will be pardoned, and that the Lord himself will come to dwell among them? The answer is found in the last phrase of verse 5. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That should be enough for God's people because God's promises are certain. In verse 8, a contrast is drawn between grass and flowers on the one hand and the Word of God on the other. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. We use the phrase, here today and gone tomorrow, to describe the transitory nature of so much of our lives here on earth. But it does not apply to God's Word. It stands forever. You can count on it. You can take it to the bank. It will never let you down. Well, who is this God anyway who judges sin but then pardons the repentant and comes to dwell among His people? in the person of the Messiah. It is time for God's people to focus their attention on the awesome character of this God. It has been said, and I firmly believe it, that every theological error and every spiritual shortcoming in human history can be traced to some misunderstanding of the nature and character of God. Two particularly egregious errors stand out among others. Some of us err in that our God is not big enough. Oh, He's bigger than we are, to be sure. We pray to Him and we worship Him, but when the crises of life hit us, as they always do, they so often knock us for a loop. We fret, we stew, we get angry, And we're prone to ask, where is God in this mess? The problem is that our God is not big enough. But for others, God is not small enough. We believe He created the heavens and the earth, and certainly He's going to decide who goes to heaven and who does not. But we hardly expect Him to be concerned about our daily decisions and problems. After all, he's got his hands full with Russia, China, Portland. When we think that way, our God is not small enough. Now, both of these views are inadequate. In fact, both are equally dangerous. 
Both are unscriptural. What is God really like? Well, he is incomparably great and he is incomparably small. The theological terms which correspond to greatness and smallness are transcendence and imminence. The transcendence of God refers to the fact that he transcends or surpasses everything else. He is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, none of which is true of anyone else or anything else in the entire universe. The eminence of God, on the other hand, and notice the spelling of eminence because there are several other words that sound the same but mean something different. It refers to the fact that while God is greater than anyone or anything in creation, he is also intimately involved with his creation. He is present with us. He is concerned about us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. You know, great persons are not always small persons. In the course of my own life, I've had the opportunity to meet some pretty famous people, powerful politicians, wealthy people, brilliant academics, world-class athletes, and experts in various fields. And it has been fascinating to me and often hurtful to discover that many of these people, as great as they are in their field, are not particularly interested in ordinary people like myself. Some of the greats have only time for other greats, powerful only for other powerful, wealthy for only wealthy, brilliant only for other brilliant. But God is both transcendent and imminent, both great and small. So critical are both of these truths that the prophet calls us to attention in verse 9. He says, Behold your God. If Isaiah were standing in this pulpit today, I suspect he would say, Men, women, and even children, I'm about to share with you the most profound truth a person can possibly know. Listen up. Quit daydreaming. Don't let your mind wander. I'm about to introduce to you the great and awesome God of the universe. Then in the next two verses, verses 10 and 11, Isaiah uses a literary device to help his readers grasp his message. He shares his message in microcosm and then expands upon it. In other words, he preaches the first point of his sermon in verse 10 and the second point in verse 11. Then in the following verses, he expands upon those two points. So let's look at the theme in microcosm. The fact that God is infinitely great is clearly stated in verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. There are four terms in this verse which help develop the concept of God's transcendence. 
The words are might, rule, reward, and recompense. These words describe God's absolute right to exercise dominion and authority over his creation and to dispense justice. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the sovereign God. That's the kind of God we worship. But that's not the whole truth about him. And so in verse 11, he preaches the second point of his sermon, that God is infinitely small. He will lead his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. And here we find four additional terms that describe the character of God. Only they reveal his eminence, his smallness, if you will. Tend, gather, carry, lead. These terms show God to be the kind of person who helps the likes of helpless sheep, like us. He loves us. He cares for us. He watches over us. He feeds us. He comforts us. Sounds like the good shepherd of John 10, doesn't it? Indeed, it does. And everything we will learn about God in this passage is true also of Jesus. As we learn more about God, we learn more about Jesus and vice versa. Time has come now to develop these two points of his message for us. So beginning in verse 12 and continuing through verse 26, we have a most profound presentation of the fact that God is big enough to rescue his people. No matter how devastating the Babylonian captivity is going to be to his people, Isaiah wants the people to know that God is big enough to rescue them. And friends, no matter what we face today, whether health challenges or financial setbacks or temptation or opposition, whether from government or the culture or Satan himself, our God is big enough to rescue us. The prophet calls upon his readers to examine six major categories of reality and to compare our infinite God to each of those categories. Isaiah rightly starts by challenging us to look at the created universe itself. The rhetorical questions in verse 12 are all designed to highlight the omnipotence of God. That is, that he is all-powerful. I'm going to do a lot of paraphrasing this morning, borrowing some from Eugene Peterson's The Message, because the Hebrew here is difficult, and I want to help you understand it as well as I can. Verse 12. Who has scooped up the ocean in his two hands, or measured the sky between his thumb and little finger? Who has put all the earth's dust in one of his baskets? and weighed each mountain and hill on scales. Do you know anyone who can do that? God can, and God alone. He just spoke the universe into existence, and he holds it in place 
by the word of his power. But the created universe not only reveals the omnipotence of God, but also his omniscience. That is, that he knows all things. Verse 13. Who could ever have told God what to do or taught him his business? What expert would he have gone to for advice? And what university would he attend to learn justice? Who do you suppose might have taught him what he knows or showed him how things work? No one, of course. God didn't need help in designing the universe, and he doesn't need any help in maintaining it either. You know, human knowledge comes by observing, generalizing, deducing, and interpreting data. It is always contingent knowledge, though our scientists sometimes pretend otherwise. But God's knowledge is never contingent. At no time did he depend upon consultation or instruction or outside information from anyone. The created universe speaks clearly and loudly of the omniscience and the greatness of our God. Secondly, look at the nations, Isaiah says. Verse 15, why the nations are like a drop from a bucket, like the dust on the scales. Behold, he sweeps up the islands like so much dirt off the floor. You know, a bucket full of water can be of some significance, especially to someone dying of thirst or a dry radiator. But a drop from a bucket is of no significance at all. Furthermore, even the slightest weight on a scales will affect them, but the dust that lies on them doesn't throw them off. The Greek isles and the Hawaiian islands are amazing treasures to us, but to God they are just so much clumps of dirt. A beautiful word picture is employed in verse 16. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Isaiah is here asking us to imagine a scene. All of nature is a temple. The great cedars of Lebanon, famous for their quantity and their quality, are cut down for the wood pile on this altar. And then all the beasts that used to roam the forests of Lebanon are sacrificed on that altar. And he says, not even that is a sufficient offering for our God. He is that great. In fact, according to verse 17, all the nations together add up to simply nothing before him. In fact, they are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. That phrase, less than nothing, is quite picturesque in Hebrew. It actually reads, a part of nothing. You know, a part of anything is less than the whole thing. And so a part of nothing is less than nothing. When I read that, I can't help but think of the United Nations, or the G20, or NATO, as imposing and as presumptuous as those organizations are, they are less than nothing when compared to God. Why should we be intimidated by them? 
or allow them to worry us. Thirdly, look at the gods of men, he says. In verses 18 to 20, the prophet authors a scathing rebuke of idol worship. So who even comes close to being like our God? To whom or what can you compare him? Some pagan idol? Give me a break. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He goes on then to observe that an idol has to be carved from wood that doesn't rot. You have to choose redwood or Maybe it's from Kansas, it'd be, be a hedge wood. After all, no one wants his God to rot on him. And then you have to choose someone who's smart enough to make the base of the idol bigger than the top because no one wants the wind to blow his idol on top of him while he's worshiping. Do you sense the scathing mockery that he lays on idol worship? And yet, friends... There are people who actually bow down to such idols rather than to the infinite, eternal, immutable God of the universe. But while we're thinking about ancients who did that and maybe certain primitive people who do it today, we should be honest enough to acknowledge that there are idols today more often made of metal and glass and electronics than of wood, but they are just as helpless. Finally, look at, uh, fourthly, look at the world's inhabitants, he says. Verse 21 and 22. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you all your lives? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? Our God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. I think the real point being made here is that people are without excuse when they fail to worship Almighty God. They are without excuse because they have heard the truth. Both nature and conscience have spoken loudly to them of who God is, as we read about in Psalm 19 and Romans chapter 1. Listen to Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, No sound is heard from them, but their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. There is no excuse for being ignorant of who God is. Of course, when the prophet calls the world's inhabitants grasshoppers, that is not meant to demean the value of redeemed mankind. Rather, he is showing that without himself, We are of no more value than pesky insects. Fifth, look at the world's great leaders. Verse 23 and 4. God brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. 
No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Presidents and prime ministers, supreme courts and parliaments, even the most ruthless dictators are powerless before our God. A number of years ago, I made a list of the leaders of major nations in the world who lost their positions in one year, some through assassination, others through scandal, some through political upheaval. It was amazing. Eight of the ten largest nations in the world lost their leader in one year's time. The world's movers and shakers are like saplings that are planted in the ground and God just blows on them and they're toast. Finally, he says, look at the heavens. Verse 25, so who is like me? Who holds a candle to me? Says the Holy One. Look at the night skies. Who do you think made all this? Who marches this army of stars out each night, counts them off, calls each by name, so magnificent, so powerful, and never overlooks a single one? A few years ago, I had the privilege of floating the Grand Canyon on the Colorado River, floating through the Grand Canyon on the Colorado River for eight days. Each night we would stop on a sandbar to sleep. And when you looked up through that canyon without any uh, of the light, the uh, what do they call that? Um, I think I wrote it down here somewhere. Um, light pollution that impacts the civilized world almost everywhere. The stars were just absolutely unbelievable. According to the prophet, there is a question that should come to one's mind whenever you see the stars. Who's responsible for all this? Certainly not the blind forces of chance. It is the Creator who is responsible. The stars are His creatures, His pets. He not only knows how many there are, He knows each of their names. That is, he knows their characteristics. He knows their nature, their function, their route. Now, friends, the profound emphasis that Isaiah has given to the awesome greatness of our God creates a potential hazard for us. It might cause us to respond to all this by thinking, if God is as great as all that, then surely he can't be concerned about me and my situation and my problems and my fears and my dreams. After all, if I'm nothing but a grasshopper, what hope is there? Recognizing that as a possible deduction, Isaiah hastens to return to the second point of his sermon that he initially introduced in verse 11, the smallness, the imminence of God. While God is big enough to rescue his people, 
He's also small enough to care. When I speak of the smallness of God this morning, of course, I do so reverently. What I mean is simply that he has condescended to come to a very small planet like ours and to reach out to very small creatures like us. Why would he do that? Because he loves us. And why does he love us? I don't have a clue, really. Just because. But sadly, we're often tempted to doubt that love. Notice here in verse 27. Why would you ever complain, O Jacob? Or whine, Israel, saying, God has lost track of me. He doesn't care what happens to me. Perhaps these complaints are being leveled by some godly Jew who has heard about this coming captivity and is complaining, God, that's not fair to judge all of us because of the sins of some. But we have our own complaints, don't we? You ever find yourself asking, why didn't I get my prayer answered? Why doesn't good fortune ever come my way? Why are rogue nations like China or Iran or North Korea allowed to create so much chaos for the rest of us? Why do terrorists get by with their evil intentions? Why do politicians get reelected when they are always lying, corrupting the system, and rewarding their friends? Why does the media get away with constantly twisting the truth to fit their own narrative? Why do criminals get released from jail without bail only to commit a worse crime later? I can't help but think of the questions R.G. Lee asked in that greatest of all 20th century sermons, Payday Someday. Where is God? Is he blind that he cannot see? Is he deaf that he cannot hear? Is he dumb that he cannot speak? Is he paralyzed that he cannot move? Where is God? Well, whoever it is complaining, Isaiah says, it's an ill-founded complaint. For the proof that he cares is found in his character. Verse 28. Don't you know anything? Haven't you been listening? God doesn't come and go. He's here to stay. He's the creator of all you can see or imagine. He doesn't get tired out. Doesn't pause to catch his breath. God is everlasting, so he is not limited by time. He is the creator, so he's not limited by space. He is God, so he doesn't grow tired or weary. So any suspicions that he has abandoned me cannot be traced to problems with God's character. It has to be traced to problems in my understanding of God's character. And that's why Isaiah adds at the end of verse 28, his understanding is inscrutable or unsearchable. The same prophet 
says in chapter 55, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Try as I might, there's no way I can understand God's reasons for allowing certain things and not allowing others. But that doesn't justify my complaints about him. He is God and he can be trusted. And then he offers a second proof that God cares. It's found in his actions. Verse 29. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Have you experienced the cool refreshment of God's strength and power? Do you know how to relax in his goodness and trust in his faithfulness? We don't do that very well often, do we? We allow the circumstances of life to crowd out the greatest truth in the world that God loves us and cares about us. In fact, he wouldn't love us one whit more if we were the most righteous person on earth and wouldn't love us one whit less if we were the worst scoundrel. God loves us. Now as the prophet concludes, he tells us a wonderful promise based upon God's greatness and smallness. It's offered to all those who trust him. This amazing chapter closes with those beautiful and timeless words. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The analogy used here is from the world of athletics. Young men are generally the most robust of the human species, yet despite their strength, they sometimes collapse at the finish line. They've even been known to fail completely. But what may happen to strong young men does not happen to those who trust in the Lord. That is, those who wait patiently for his purposes to be carried out. Instead, they will renew their strength. The Hebrew reads literally, they will exchange strengths. Are you ready for a great exchange? How about this? Your weakness for God's strength. Your confusion for God's wisdom. Your fear for God's faithfulness. Your anxiety for God's unchangeableness. Your sin for God's forgiveness. Friends, God is big enough to rescue you. And he's small enough to care. No matter what mountain you are facing today, he can help you climb it. No matter what temptation is plaguing you, he is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability to endure. No matter what opposition comes against you, he is able to protect you and to rescue you. But in order to experience his power and his presence, you have to come to him through his Messiah, Jesus. 
the one he sent to be the Savior of the world. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we bow before you in awe. We are in awe of who you are. We are in awe that you could love us enough to send your one and only Son to die for us and to provide forgiveness for our sins. We give you all the glory and honor. In his name we pray. Amen.